0: This episode of Writing Excuses is brought to you by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com excuse to start your free trial membership. Season 7, Episode 44.
1: This is Writing Excuses, live at Gen Con. Today we're doing writing for comics with Jim Zubb. 15 minutes long, because you're in a hurry. And we're not
2: that smart. I'm Brandon. I'm Mary. I'm Howard. And Jim, will you please introduce yourself? I'm Jim Zub. What what have you done? Uh, I'm the writer of uh, Skull Kickers, published by Image Comics, and premiering here at Gen Con is the new Pathfinder comic series from Paizo and Dynamite Comics. I'm the writer on that, really uh, in the heart of role-playing mecca here, so it's been fantastic. And
3: in the spirit of... Plugging uh, my friend Jim's work, Skull Kickers, is the fantasy comic that I wish I had written. I awesome. love that book.
1: Sweet. All right. Well, we're going to talk about writing for comics. Um, and Jim, you write scripts and send them off, um, and people illustrate them. Right. I know nothing about this, <laughs> I know so little. Um, so to give me some um, some more context, do you ever say this is what they're going to do in the scene, draw this? Or do you just give only dialogue and let them go?
2: No, it is sort of a comic book script. There is no one set format. Okay. So a lot of uh, writers have different approaches to it. The way that I work is somewhere between a screenplay and prose. Okay. So I try and give the artist, it's almost like this extended screenplay letter to the artist. I'm describing uh, what's happening in a particular page or a panel. I'm pretty methodical about it. I describe what's happening, any important uh, information that they need to impart in the artwork so that they know what the focal point is of this particular page or this particular issue. Before I get into the actual page by page breakdown, I even have a, usually a preamble where I say, in this issue, these are the important themes or these are the emotional beats or the readers, the, the thing they should walk away from this issue with is this you know, impression. So always remember that as you're doing the artwork for this issue. Okay. Uh, I go through, I dialogue the whole thing. In some cases, I'll have uh, sound effects in there as well if they're particularly crucial. Then they'll send me back uh, thumbnail drawings with rough um, positioning for characters and compositions for the uh, panels. My background is also in art. I used to work in yeah. animation. So the good thing is I can actually draw over top or make um, you know recommendations in terms of the visuals, and then they go off and do the final line art when it comes back in, there's a lettering pass with the word balloons and the sound effects, and we make any last minute tweaks. So if a if a character's facial expression no longer seems to match the dialogue as well as I would like, or if it looks like it's too verbose, more than I you know uh, I put too much in there, and I can mm-hmm. actually say it in less words, or or vice versa. Okay. That's when I can sort of go into it.
1: So my big first question for you guys, and that means Jim and Howard, is how can you be so short? <laughs> I don't. I like. Ha- you have to tackle things in really short I, chunks. Like yeah. No, no, really, like... Not your size. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, Howard. <laughs> Six-inch boots, yep. Uh, no, how, how do you keep it
3: short? Well, do you have tricks? Like,
1: how can you express yourself? Like, wh- you do it really
3: well. My writing process, my writing process, I, uh, I write the dialogue that needs to be written, and then, you know, for four panels, because I'm writing four panels at a time, and I ask myself the question, uh, it's always, you know, in late, out early, uh, how, how late can I come in, yep. how early can I go out, uh, if I'm writing a sequence so that these four panels picked up immediately after the previous four panels, I ask myself, what is the, what is the key piece of linking dialogue that has to be present for this to feel like a conversation, uh, and how much else can I omit? And then I write the whole thing, and there's always too many words on the page. And then I rewrite it, and rewrite it, and rewrite it, and prune, and rewrite it. And writing 150 words uh, will take me often 30 to 45 minutes, because I wrote 500 to 1,000 words in the process
2: of shaving and, and whittling and carving
3: it away. And carving it away.
2: Yeah, well, for me, it's really when I do the outline of the issue I, for myself uh, on my blog recently, I, I did a full breakdown of oh, how cool. I write. Oh. So uh, if you go to jimzub.com, we'll link uh, to that on the sweet. I've got a five part uh, blog breakdown of how I write comics, and one of the things I do is a page by page beat sheet. So I justify the existence of every page in the comic. So I don't want to have slow transitions unless it's saying something about the characters or I don't want to have just pages for the sake of having pages. Every page has to justify its existence and every panel in a sense has to justify its existence. Sometimes you weigh heavily on the art end of things to describe character or describe plot or you know moments, physical moments, and other times you're using the dialogue and they have to work together. And that's the thing is that even though the only dialogue you're seeing on the finished page that I wrote, you know, that's the only text from my script that makes it to the finished comic page. The reality is there's tons of other stuff written in the script to give the artist what they need to deliver the information. And so I think the scripting process is really weird to people because they look and they go, oh, there's two little word balloons on that page, or I had a page in the first issue of Pathfinder that's silent and it's all the characters sleeping while one of them watches guard. And you're like, well, that must have been an easy page to write. And you're like, actually, there was tons of description of how the characters are doing this thing and watching over each other and what they're doing that's going to tell something else to the reader that they may not have gotten through dialogue.
3: On the flip side of that, uh, I, I was talking to Mike Mignola, and he said, every so often, he'll get to a point where he's able to tell an artist he trusts for the next three pages,
2: Hellboy fights an army of skeletons. Yeah. Go. <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's the great thing about having a collaborator and an artist, where, you know, uh, when I started working with Edwin on Skull Kickers, uh, it, it was the weirdest process for me because it's a funny book. Uh, in, in short, Skull Kickers is sort of like a buddy cop movie meets Conan the Barbarian. So it's uh, these two idiot monster hunters who get themselves in deep trouble and have to kill their way out over and over and over again and we keep raising the stakes and we it's my own sort of uh love letter slash elbow in the ribs to the fantasy genre and i'm having so much fun putting it together but at first edwin and i this is our first project together i had to describe jokes to him this is the most awkward thing where in the script i'm saying this will be funny because can you imagine like deconstructing a joke and pulling it apart and making it the most unfunny thing you can possibly imagine. As you say, and now the expression slightly changes, which will make the reader think this thing, and you're just like, oh God, it's not funny anymore. But I know how it's going to end up on the page and that the reader's going to see it in a much... You know, they're just going to read the joke, get the joke, and and be off and running. But the artist needs to know what the focal point is to make sure that we hit the mark. Particularly, you know, if it was just a beautiful drawing, they've got, oh, this beautiful piece of art. But with a joke, if you don't see what the focal point is, you're like, what is that? Oh, I guess that's supposed to be funny because I had to work my way through it. So clarity is extra important, you know, for the storytelling stuff that we're doing in Skull Kickers. And But now that we've done, uh issue 17 comes out in about a week as of this recording, um, we really know each other. So I it's much more shorthand, sort of like what Howard was saying with Mike Magnola, where once you know the artist and once you can work with them, you can really get into a great groove. And you say, this is similar to that. Or we're doing a callback to that thing we did before. Or you know how this works. It's a four panel you know, transition this way. And this is what's going to be the important part. And so my scripts are getting more terse as our relationship grows, and I think that's really great too. He feels more comfortable injecting more of himself into the process. I don't feel like I have to clamp down and control it as much because I know that we're on the the same path now. That we're you know on the same uh, wavelength.
0: Mary, did you have something more? Um, well, as you were talking, it reminds me very much. I come from a live theater background, oh, and cool. it it reminds me very much of that process. But yeah. one one thing that I'm curious about is um, you know in live theater we have a director, right? And in fiction, I have an editor. Is there an editor in this process?
2: Depends on the book. So I'm doing the Pathfinder series with Paizo and Dynamite, and there's an editor, and there's, I mean, at Paizo, I think there's five people that review the scripts, which was kind of terrifying the first time I sent one in when they said, oh, Eric Mona goes he's the head publisher at Paizo. I'm going to look it over, and I'm going to send it to our world editor and our fiction editor, and uh, we've got our our community guy who wants to check it over, and and I was like, oh, they're all going to come back with notes. It's going to be horrifying, but luckily... They did like a round table to figure it all out. And there was just one tiny little set of notes. They said, it looks great. I was like, oh, good. With Skull Kickers, it's my own independent series. Right. So Image Comics is a pretty big comic publisher. They do The Walking Dead and Spawn and a lot of other series. But they were founded on the idea of creator-owned comics, the creators at the top of the pyramid. So I don't have an editor unless I want one, essentially. Mm-hmm. And that is great and terrifying at the same time. So, like so in I, the theater. Yeah, I feel like I'm walking without a, you know, without a net underneath the tightrope. So Skull Kickers, I get a couple of close friends of mine to review a script, or my wife, who's also a writer, will read things over. And usually I walk into the other room, and if she starts chuckling or whatever, I'm like, okay, we're on the, we're on the path, right? <laughs> and every so often, I'll get a, oh, and then I know we're doing really good. You know, so.
1: Let's stop for our book of the week. You had a book you wanted to, to promote,
2: um, yeah. one of your favorites. Yeah, it's funny. Um, a lot of people ask me about you know, the influences for Skull Kickers, and I've actually been going back and rereading uh, Fritz Lieber's uh, Pfeffer and the Grey Mouser. Okay. So, also a, a fantasy duo humorous, violent, pulpy, and that's totally in the spirit of what I do with Skull Kickers. And so it was funny going back and rereading those books, and things that I remembered very vividly weren't even necessarily the most important moments, but they struck with me because they had a particular humor or a particular turn of a phrase or the atmosphere that was built up in a particular scene and... Um, Whereas sometimes even the main plot in the book, I would be like, oh, is that what happened? I, when I was a kid, it was all about the way they killed that one creature. You know what I mean? That stuck with me. Sort of like when I watched Conan the Barbarian when I was a kid, and the only moment I could remember was when he punches out the camel. Thought that was great when I was a kid. I wore out the tape, rewinding it over and over again. He punched right out a camel. I was like, this is the greatest movie ever made. I was also eight years old. Yeah. So... Uh, yeah, Thaffer and the Grey Mouser. Uh, there's a bunch of different uh, books in the series, and they're fantastic, classic pulp fantasy. Yeah, yeah go out to audiblepodcast.com slash
3: excuse, and you can start a 30-day free trial membership. Pick up uh, Swords and Deviltry, or any of the other titles, uh, by Fritz Lieber, narrated by, wait for this, Jonathan Davis and Neil Gaiman. Wow. wow. Mm.
2: Sweet.
0: I'm anticipating a lot of clicks this week. <laughs>
3: Um,
1: so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw another writing-style question at you. Pacing for comic books. How do you pace? What is your process for building an, an arc through a, through a comic book?
2: Um, I'm really methodical about how I do a breakdown. Uh, so what I do is I do the overview of the entire story arc, which is usually anywhere from four to six issues. Then I do a breakdown of what elements are happening to open the issue. So we have a strong opening and a strong, usually, cliffhanger ending to the issue keep people reading. Uh, justifying, of course, the rising tension and everything else for the climax of the arc and then the, the, you know, uh, the wrap up. But then within the issue itself, I also want to have a rise and fall. And comics have a really unique thing where we call them page turners. Mm-hmm. So you have that classic thing where at the bottom of the right-hand page, someone goes, who? And they open a door, and you want to turn the page to find out what they're looking at. Or a character is entering a scene, or a character is interacting with someone, and the reveal is always on the page turn. Not every single time, right. but enough that it propels the comic forward. So when I'm actually... Um, Putting together my pacing sheet, I'll have just a list of usually twenty-two pages. So one to twenty-two in either a text file or a sheet of paper, and I do those breakdowns. That every time I've got an odd page, I'm like, well, if I'm going to have a reveal, I don't want it on the on the sorry on the odd page.
3: You can't put reveals on on the odd page
2: because the readers can see it in their peripheral vision. They're like, and the murder is. I know who the murderer is because it's right there in my view on the right hand side. Whereas if they got to turn the page and go, it was the butler, you know, like whatever. Right. So then you've got some kind of, you know, element propelling the comic forward. It's a really kind of a unique element of it. Also, when you're going to use a full page, when you're going to use a double page spread, mm. those types of things where panel size becomes crucial. You know, if I have a lot of small panels and they're all equally spaced, there's a staccato kind of rhythm to it. Whereas if I have uh, strange shaped panels or things like that, or I'm, then it creates a chaotic feel, like a battle scene. Do you scene count...
3: Like Uh, to pages 11 and 12 for the centerfold and try and make sure that there is a big spread in the middle of the book? I
2: used to. I don't anymore because the comics are published weird. If there's ads in the front, then that blows it out the other way. So you can't really gauge it anymore the way you used to because they will always give me page one on a right-hand side, but they won't always give me the middle of the book where I think it's going to be. So sometimes you get a happy accident. But I usually don't worry about that as much anymore.
1: Um... Last area I want to go, and this again is a big topic, um, but let's say there's somebody listening who wants to be you. Okay. They want to have a creator... They own... should have a better diet. <laughs> 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 um, Create your <laughs> own independent comic with image at, who's at kind of the top of that, um, that, that force. How do they become you? What
2: advice do you give them? How do they go about doing it? It's a much, uh, in some ways it's a much easier industry to break into than ever before. You know, when I was a kid and I was reading Marvel comics, there was a sense that you had to live in New York City, mm. or you had to be such a huge name that they would be willing to, you know, uh, send you. You could mail your artwork in or things like that. But nowadays, with the internet and things like that, you can put your work online. The majority of of comic creators at this point are using the web as sort of their portfolio. They're making short stories, they're putting them on the web, they're writing stories, and they're soliciting for artists on websites like DeviantArt or. Penciljack or conceptart.org or, or other art-based websites like that. And so they're able to go through that entire process and build up their craft. The weirdest part is that they're doing it in the public eye. So they're putting it out there, they're building up their form and, and slowly but surely learning how to do it. I think the biggest mistake that people make is that because it feels like this stuff is very accessible that they go, well, I have great ideas, so let me write you know, Wolverine or whatever thing they want to do, not understanding that it does take years to build your craft. It, just like anything else, you have to get better at it, you have to screw it up, you have to learn how to, why it's being done the way it's being done. Yeah, and then, if, you're,
3: uh, if you look at uh, that page of the characters sleeping in Pathfinder and yeah. say to yourself, that must have been easy to write, you're not ready to have Jim's job right. yet.
2: <laughs> right. but that, and that's the whole kind of thing. I think it's, it's like any other you know, professional occupation. You've got to practice at it. You've got to get better at it. And comics are no different. The difference for me is that, well, one of the things I say is don't rush into um, doing a comic with just the first artist you find. Make sure it's the right artist, that they are just as professional or more so because you're going to be judged so much by how it looks. And is the art a good fit for the story is it you know, really enhancing the story and take your best shots? You know, I feel very fortunate that I've been able to work with some great artists, but it's also because I was really patient, so I didn't just jump into it and go, I've got to do this right now. You've got you to build up a relationship with someone, find someone dependable, and, uh, and put out the best project you're both going to be proud of. Um, I think the most helpful thing probably from all of us people will find is is that blog of yours. So oh, they'll cool. actually be able to go see. I yeah. assume you posted some of those scripts as, you, as you've worked yep. on it. I've got like that. full scripts, and yep. I've also got comparisons of uh, the finished page and the script and see, how they changed. That's going to be so helpful. So make sure you guys go out to Uh Z-
0: JimZub.com,
1: <laughs> <Zim-Zub. laughs> <Zim-Zub. laughs> right? Yep. And we will link that. Uh, Jim, do you
2: have a writing prompt you could throw at us? Sure. Um, well, you don't mind if I do a comic book? No, one? Yeah, not, not at all. all. Okay, Ooh. cool. So I guess we'll... This is kind of an interesting idea here. So introducing a place without dialogue. Mm. So what can you use, almost like a camera, more like a movie, if you had five panels, how would you introduce people to a place they've never been before and make them feel that they know that place? All right. Thank you very much. This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses.
1: go right